Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The problem with all contemporary churches is that we treat the term scripture as though it were a noun. We gossip about the Bible like a difficult relative nobody wants to visit, but everyone loves to discuss. We comfort ourselves with lullabies about its importance. We mostly ignore it unless we need a good quote to make our point. We have ideas, feelings, and opinions about it. We argue about who owns it and what good or evil it has caused. It operates as an abstraction in our mind, like a teenage crush or nemesis. We hold it up at rallies. We use it to blame each other. We do and say everything with it, but the one thing necessary for it to work. We refuse to read, hear, and study it daily until the seed does what the seed does. Scripture is not a noun, it is a verb. The cross, the destruction of the city, condemnation, enduring God's blessing and curse under the constant pressure of judgment. None of this is theoretical if you submit to the burden of scriptural study. Every step in life takes on new meaning in the terrible hands of the scriptural God. Put that in your marketing campaign. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke Chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 436 of the Bible as Literature podcast, The Great Thing About Scripture is after it blows everything up, after it enters into the camp, drops the bomb, brings down the temple, undermines the priest, confounds the community, it then presents its premise, which is the kingdom without end. The kingdom that you can't lay your hands on. The kingdom we heard about first in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of the heavens. And the one who is enthroned in this kingdom, the one who represents the king of this kingdom on earth, comes from a line that you can't lay your hands on. Now we are getting down to business. This is the only way that Scripture can 
challenge us with its authority. It's the only way that Scripture can impress a Roman audience that loves power by coming at you with the full authority and power of Roman institutional hierarchy, impregnating it with a power that you can see and touch in the person imposing this teaching, this proposition, the head of the household in which you are fed this bread, this teaching, but you can't lay your hands on this kingdom, you can't lay your hands on this throne, you can't even see this king whom this baby who has no father on earth represents. And he's replacing a temple that was destroyed historically and was just emasculated in your mind. Welcome to the New Testament. And when we come into this, everyone's going to be thinking about Jesus, and they're going to be thinking about the baby Jesus, and they're going to be thinking about the manger and how cute and everything, and then they're going to think about Jesus wandering around in the wilderness and teaching and finding disciples and making his band of people and all this kind of thing. But that's not the speech that the angel is presenting. He's presenting a king with a throne and a kingdom, okay? At this point in the story... We can't help but think of kings and thrones and kingdoms. I mean, that's the only way to think of this. If we aren't thinking that, then the reality of the literary Jesus is not going to strike us the way it's supposed to, because Jesus goes against all of these images that are being built up. The angel is building up what Jesus is going to be, and then Jesus is going to systematically undermine those assumptions about what he's going to be. So just like the camp and the temple and the palace were all destroyed, your understanding of what a king is and what a throne is and what a kingdom is have to be destroyed as well. All of these ideas have to be dismantled in this literary way. Luke is constructing this world in which he's using the concept, he's using your expectation, maybe that's a better word, your expectation of what a king is, and he's going to start messing with it and undermining it. And Jesus is going to be this king, but then you're going to find out that there are these other kings who have physical thrones and physical kingdoms and stuff who start mistreating Jesus and ignore Jesus and can kind of brush Jesus to the side. Well, then the question has to arise, what kind of king is this? What kind of throne is this? Understanding the throne, you know, Father Paul has talked so much about the throne. I remember in OT101 class, like an entire hour and a half on the throne, and he would draw that little throne on the chalkboard and keep like overlaying it and overlaying it, overlaying it all lecture long with chalk, making it deeper and deeper cut into the chalkboard. And he would draw a scroll on the throne. I remember it vividly. There would be a scroll on the throne. He lectured that long because the throne is functional. Everyone understands that the throne is powerful. Everyone understands the throne is powerful. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you do or anything. And I can show this to you because 2,000 years later, Saddam Hussein went and built thrones in every one of his houses so he could sit in them. Okay. Now, is this a Middle Eastern thing? No, it isn't. Because when my American friend from the Midwest 
was in the army, went to Iraq after they got rid of Saddam Hussein. Him and all of his buddies took pictures of themselves sitting in the throne. Why is that? They didn't show. They didn't take pictures of them sitting at Saddam Hussein's dining room table. Only at his throne. Everybody knew that the throne was powerful. Okay, but that's not enough to understand that it's powerful. What does it mean to have power? It's very specific. What that power is. That power is to judge. The power is to judge, and so when Jesus sits on the throne, he's going to judge. And when the Lord sits. The Lord sits in order to judge. So sitting and thrones are about judgment. And therefore, who sits in the throne? The king, which means the king functions as judge. That's why mishpat, justice, is one of the most important traits of a good king. The trait that Solomon had was wisdom. If you're supposed to be like Saul and just lead people out into battle, wisdom isn't as as important. But if your job is to judge, which is in fact the role of the king, you must have wisdom. Otherwise, you're going to make bad decisions, and the people are going to suffer. The throne is judgment. The king who sits on it is the judge, and wisdom is the way in which he judges if he is a good king, if he's given this gift from God as Solomon. This is all setting up this king on a throne. But at this point in the story. I can't talk yet about how Jesus doesn't actually get to sit down any time during the course of his life in Luke. We have to leave that to the side. We have to sit with Mary here, whose expectations are the normal ones: that there's going to be like a chair, and there's going to be a building, and there's going to be a guy with his butt sitting on the chair. That's not what's going to happen. But we have to stay in the literary mindset of the literary Mary in this literary situation we have unfolding now. We already know from. The narrative arc of the New Testament that Jesus will be seated at the right hand of power. That's how he is presented or posited in Matthew. So we have to hear what's happening in Luke, but we already understand something about the throne as a function from our hearing of Matthew and Mark. It's very important. That's what I was referring to earlier, because you're starting to think of Jesus as the King, but that's tricky. Just like you can't think of the paterfamilias in a Roman context as Christ, even though functionally the paterfamilias is the local household deity, he is functionally the authority of Christ. Just like Christ is functionally the authority of Elohim, but you can't tell me the paterfamilias is Jesus. That's nonsense. We're not talking about ontology and philosophy. We're talking about functionality. This business about the chair is the key. I will never forget the first time I saw it, Richard, in a monastery when the abbot was traveling. At the end of the service, at the time for the blessing, the monks lined up to take a blessing from the chair. In the liturgy, the priest and the deacon. In the absence of the bishop, bow to the chair, because the authority is functional. The anti-idolatry mechanism of Scripture is canceling the human being, so that we can understand that 
God is the absence of human power. Divine power is manifest in the cancellation of the human ego. That is the meaning of the cross. That is the meaning of the destruction of the temple. It is in the death and cancellation of human prestige, human accomplishment, human achievement, human endowment. Whatever it is we aspire to, it must die in martyrdom in order for God to manifest himself in glory. And the reason the churches are not scriptural is because they are not scriptural. End of subject. It is about scripture. Either we are hearing it, preaching it, reading it, and suffering under it, or we're not. People keep saying, how, Father Mark? What do you mean, how? Read it. You just have to read it and explain it. But you said we're not supposed to speak. Come on, guys. Just read it and explain it. And if you don't know Hebrew, find somebody who does. If you don't know Greek, find somebody who does. Or get a dictionary. Just do the work. You will be canceled. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to last week's podcast. Do this long enough, you will be condemned by it, and you will be forced to keep going. You will learn how to keep speaking even though you're not allowed to speak. And you will be taught what to say. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, Yahshua. I've already mentioned what Father Paul explained in his book, The Rise of Scripture, that just as Paul is the new Moses, Jesus is the new Joshua. And the function of Joshua in the Old Testament was to ensure life for the people despite the failure of Moses. Remember that Moses didn't enter into the promised land. So here in the New Testament, Jesus, the new Joshua, is going to ensure the victory of the Father's teaching for the sake of all of the families of the earth. And it must never be lost on us in the hearing of Luke that this text is addressed to the lovers of God in the Gentile churches. So now Jesus, the new Joshua, is truly ensuring life in the wilderness of the Gentiles for all of the families of the earth. We're talking about Canaan for Jew and Gentile, for the Judahites and everybody else. We can keep going on this. You know, there's this happy coincidence, whether by the hand of man or only by the hand of God, I don't know. But the major portions of the prophets and the Hebrew Tanakh and the former prophets and the later prophets, the first book of the former prophets is Yeshua, and of the greater prophets is Yeshayahu, which is Isaiah, and of the book of the twelve, the first one is Hosea, and Hosea, 
all three of these sections of the prophets begin with this salvation, this yasha. We say salvation, and salvation is like this good feeling that I'm with Jesus or something like that. It's funny to me when I listen to this word because the way that people use this word, it doesn't function in the way that it functions in Scripture. In Scripture, this is the victory. The salvation is you're being saved from an army. But it's not being saved. It's not about me being saved. The name is the Lord saves in all three of these cases. All three of these names, even though they sound a little bit different, they're in a different order, they all have the same meaning. The Lord saves. And that doesn't mean like, oh, great, so I know that I'm saved by the Lord. That's the one who saved me. It doesn't mean you're saved and it happens to be the Lord who saved you. It means there is one who saves and that's the Lord. So don't ignore him. Even if we get to a point, which we inevitably will, at which Jesus doesn't look like a king, doesn't look like a judge, doesn't look like the right hand of power, it is still the Lord who saves. And in spite of what you see, you have to recognize what the Lord has been trying to speak through every one of his prophets. That's why the prophets keep getting named the same name section after section. And it's the salvation that only the Lord has because it's only the Lord who is victorious. The Lord not only is the one who sits on the throne and judges with wisdom, he's also the one who is victorious. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the head of the army. He's both in the ideal sense. But his victory is eschatological. It's of the heavens. It's something that we can't grasp in the way that we like to grasp it. It's not immediate in the way that we feel most comfortable with it. So where things start to look like it's sideways, it might be the Lord's victory. We don't know what the Lord's victory looks like, and that's what makes us nervous. We know what victory looks like in Ukraine. We know what happens when one side is victorious or the other, and we know what it takes to get there for one side or the other to be victorious. But Zelensky doesn't sit on the throne that the Lord sits on, and neither does Putin. There's one throne, and it's in the heavens. Both sides might lose. Both sides might win. Russia might win. Ukraine might win. But the only one that brings victory is the Lord, and it's not in the way that you think. It's not the way that you want. And his victory doesn't mean, ah, now we get to be with Jesus. No, I was just reading Amos today, and he said there's going to be a sieve, and he's going to sift everyone in the sieve, and he's going to get the pebbles out, and the ones that are left over are going to be the ones that, that get saved, and then the ones that don't make it through, like they're the ones. When you're sifting grain, you have to throw the rocks out, but only the Lord gets the sieve. He says, yes, Israelites, I saved you out of Egypt. But the Philistines I save out of Kaftor. The Syrians I save too. That's what I do. That's what I do. So Israel, it's not about you, that you were saved. It's about me. I am the one who saves. Richard, when what? When what? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs. What does a war mean? What do you win when everything turns to ash and dung in the end? What is the fight about? This is the scriptural premise. The cross is the premise. What are we talking about?
when we talk about the greatness of Jesus Christ, what are we talking about? He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. What are we talking about? First of all, we have this technical phrase, Lord God. We know from Father Paul that this is a technical syntax because Lord is Yahweh, God is Elohim. Yahweh is the local deity of the sons of Israel. Elohim is the universalized deity of the Old Testament, which means we are talking now about the universal hegemony of God over all the families of the earth through Jesus Christ. This is the most high God of Ezekiel above all gods. This is the total dominance of the scroll over the entire earth. So that's what we mean by great and most high. But in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, Jesus has to be canceled. No one hearing this will even consider the premise of Scripture, will consider what it means to follow Jesus, because we are so enslaved to the language of power from a human perspective. If we understand that to give all the power to the invisible God means that we have to be crushed and condemned. This is the novelty of the Bible. Show me anyone today, anywhere, anyone, any philosophy, any pundit, any politician, any, quote, influencer, I can't stand that word in social media. Show me anyone anywhere in the world today whose premise is self-condemnation, not self-critique, self-condemnation as a path towards life. And that is what's being proposed here in verse 32 within the context of the narrative. You can't hear it now if you take it out of context, which is what you do on your Christmas card invitations. And then you present Jesus like he's President Bush or President Obama. It's a very painful verse. And then you get excited that he's the son of his father, David. But we just heard that he's nobody's son except Elohim's. So what's going on there? We talk about thinking scripturally and acting scripturally and things like this, but, you know, it's very easy for this to become idolatry anyway. Because when we say this, we realize that we're making an assumption that there are some verbs that come before that, such as read, listen, study. There's no way to act scripturally unless you're listening and reading the Bible itself, not just the Bible as literature podcast. You have to really get into the Bible to understand what it is, because here's the problem. If you're just thinking about the Bible or considering the Bible, it starts to sound a lot like you, which is not 
what scripture is. Scripture is anti-you. It's against you. How are you supposed to be against you inside your own head unless you have split personalities? I mean, it doesn't work that way. It's not the little voice inside you that tells you what to do next or your little Jiminy Cricket that follows you around. That's not what the Bible is. It requires study and it requires time. And I'll give you a little test to see what your priorities are. If you've had to be inconvenienced by something in order to read Scripture, if you've had to miss some kind of activity because you had to read Scripture, then you're on the right track. But if you're doing everything you would do normally and reading Scripture, then Scripture is not your number one priority. It's not. Scripture has to crowd out something else if it's actually number one. So that's just a little test you can perform. You and I, Father, had to spend some time understanding what this meant. The throne of his father David. Well, it was a big deal that he's not the son of David. He made a big deal here, made a big deal in Matthew. Okay, so what does it mean of his father David? The son of David means the king. First of all, doesn't necessarily mean genetics. It's the category of David. The category of David as kind of the exemplary king, and you're the son of that, which make, means you're the king. You know, a son of Washington doesn't mean that you're produced by his marriage. No, it means that you're a president of the same mindset of George Washington. That's what a son of Washington would mean. That's the first piece. The second piece is that this is the eschatological David. This is the shepherd David that undermines what kingship is. And this is what we read again and again in the prophets. That's how we understand what David functions as as an eschatological king as opposed to the king who has a lot of problems in First and Second Samuel, where David acts like all the other kings. He goes and he slaughters tens of thousands of people, and then he helps one disabled person, and everyone claps their hands. He should be taking care of disabled people, but the slaughtering the tens of thousands, it's very easy to forget. David in Samuel acts as just a plain old regular king, but when he starts out as the shepherd and he's chosen as the shepherd, as the one who's on the margins, that's where he is chosen as king. And so when we think of the eschatological David, it has to undermine our concept, our understanding of what the king is. So we have to keep reading scripture and studying scripture and listening to scripture so that that image of the eschatological David comes into mind. Otherwise, we're going to think that Jesus is going to be a king just like David was and ask if he can build a temple and have a conversation and then slaughter tens of thousands of people in Syria and blah, 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 like the other David did. No, this is the eschatological David, the one who's patterned after the shepherd David, and this is how Jesus will reign. That's the hope in Scripture, that the staff of the shepherd which is functional. It's the staff of the scroll of the teaching. That's why Father Paul used to put a scroll on the chair. It's a reference to Ezekiel. That the staff of the shepherd is in opposition to the king and city in the classical world. That is the hope. Because if the scroll reigns, then no human being reigns. It is in the absence of human power that God is manifest. And that's not an ideological statement. Scripture actualizes it through judgment and condemnation of the addressee and the preacher. That is what we have been explaining in the condemnation of Zacharias and the deconstruction of the temple in chapter 1 of Luke. Luke is making it 
impossible for the scriptural God to be made manifest by deconstructing the things that you build and deconstructing the very people, the very individual, be it me or Richard, reading Luke to you. This is the point. Let the reader beware. The one actually reciting the text is on notice. Are you kidding me? It is only when every voice is silenced in this sense that God, the scriptural God, who is the absence of human tyranny. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it, Rich. It is only in this moment, in the crucifixion, that there is hope. How do you convince people that the absence of hope from a human perspective is hope? You don't have to convince the poor. And that's the beauty of the New Testament. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Anyone hearing this, if they're honest with themselves, has to roll their eyes. (laughs) There are people in Africa, there are people in countries you can't even name. The New York Times doesn't talk about them because they're not relevant to your economy. You talk about Ukraine, but there are countries you don't know about because it doesn't affect the price of gas. And don't tell me otherwise. We know from their suffering that the reality is this kingdom hasn't been ushered in. So the promise of this teaching begins and the hope of this teaching depends on our condemnation the condemnation of the things we build the deconstruction of the things we want to say and the supplanting of them with the words of Luke the things that he is setting forth which scripture has been setting forth from Genesis until now the law that is set before us the law of God this law by which he rules will be the word of his father he will reign we have this word twice vasilevsi he will reign vasilias of his kingdom there will be no end so this is really about his reigning and again we're going to think that he is supplanting caesar he's going to somehow get a chair on the mountain in Jerusalem and Caesar is not going to be able to tell him what to do and he's going to be able to tell the Jews what to do and he's going to be able to tell the Romans to get out of town. This is what he's going to be able to do. This is our understanding of what being on the throne of his father David means he's going to be sitting in Jerusalem naturally and that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob, that's a house of Israel. That's a united Israel. Before there was this split between the north and the south. So he's going to rule over all ten tribes, all the stuff that we really wanted. And that his kingdom is going to have no end. We don't have to worry ever again. But like you said, Father, the victory that the Lord posits, that the Lord imposes, that the Lord enjoys 
is not necessarily our enjoyment. Human beings, we're going to suffer. We're biological. Like we get hurt, we die, we get sick. That's part of being biological. There's no end to that. But that's different than the victory that he's talking about. The victory he's talking about is that those who are alive, whether sick or healthy, are going to live according to his word, according to his Torah. And when they live according to his Torah, their obedience will be seen and their righteousness will be seen. And everyone from all the nations all around will see what this means and what this looks like. And that's when Jesus reigns. But when Jesus reigns as king and everyone is following Torah, everyone is living according to this Torah until their death. Everyone is martyred as a matter of course. That martyrdom just becomes normal. We want to eliminate martyrdom by making an American Christian empire so that nobody has to be martyred ever again. But who's going to testify to the fact that this teaching is more important than anything that anybody does anywhere in the world. Like I said with reading scripture, if reading scripture isn't cutting into how you live your life, then it's definitely not number one priority. If following Torah isn't cutting into the rest of your life, then how do you know it's number one priority? And until you actually face the choice of Torah or life, how do you know Torah is number one? You don't know. But as a matter of course, in that kingdom, when Jesus reigns, then it's Torah number one every single time. But there's a lot of sifting God's going to have to do to find the, like, two people who might be willing to do that, (laughs) if he's lucky. This is what that reign is going to look like. But again, when Mary's hearing these words in the story, it's simply... I don't understand how is this guy going to be a king like how what's going to like when how's he going to take over Jerusalem like is he is there going to be a war or like why are the the Romans going to let him do that and there's all kind of questions like that like the patriarch of Romania told Father Paul I'm the patriarch of Romania <laughs> I'm the Lord I'm 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 Kyrios Theos that's all the answer you need and that's all the answer we need Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.